Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. Change is a constant in life and a constant for cities. One city that knows that well is Austin, Texas, especially when it comes to the cost of living there. The surreal thing is that the creative class is what made Austin appealing, and now the creative class is being priced out. There used to be a music lab rehearsal space that all every band was kind of rite of passage to rehearse in this gross place that was just beer-soaked and just was nasty in there. I can't make this stuff up. This band space is now... Thank you for calling Tesla. Please hold for the next available agent. That's right. It's a Tesla showroom. That's from KUT's podcast, Growth Machine, How Austin Engineered Its Housing Market. You first heard Adrian Quesada. He's an Austin musician who's played with Los Lobos and Prince. He spoke to KUT's Audrey McGlinchey, who hosts that podcast. Today, we take a look at Austin and other growing U.S. cities. Why do some cities grow so fast? And how much growth is too much? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America project, looking at how our government is and is not working for everyone. It's a partnership with six public radio stations, including KUT in Austin, Texas. We'll be back with the show after this short break. Stay with us. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Let's get into it and welcome our first guests. Joining us from Austin is Audrey McGlinchey. She's KUT's housing reporter and hosts that KUT podcast, Growth Machine. Audrey, welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. And joining us from Roosevelt, New Jersey, is Alan Malik. He's the author of Smaller Cities in a Shrinking World, Learning to Thrive Without Growth. Alan, welcome back. Audrey, just give us some context. How much has Austin grown in the past decade? Yeah, so the city was actually recently just named the 10th largest city in the country um, with a, a population just under a million people. And this is incredible if you think about just 40 years ago in 1980, Austin was the 42nd largest city in the country. So nowhere near the 10th. Um, our population here uh, doubles about every two decades. Um, it's just really been incredible, incredible population growth. For the 12th year in a row, the Austin Round Rock Georgetown metro area is the fastest growing large metro region in the country. The city of Austin published those numbers in May. We got this voicemail from Kevin. I lived in Austin from 2012 until 2018, and it was a boom town. When I got there, I was paying $550 for a two-bedroom, and by the time I left, I was paying more than double that for a tiny one-bedroom apartment. I moved to Pittsburgh and love it. Not a boom town, but it's everything we love at a good price. Kevin, thanks for that message. So he lived in Austin from 2012 to 2018. His rent 
doubled. Audrey, how has that boom changed the city? Yeah, well, like you mentioned, it has had a significant impact on housing prices, rents,、um, the price of buying a house in the city have gone up incredibly, especially during the pandemic. I should mention, as we saw happen in a lot of、uh, U.S. cities,、um, and yeah, it's really as as Kevin mentioned, it's forced some people to consider whether they want or can afford to stay here,、um, and a lot of people have、um, have moved out. But again, at the same time, we know a lot of people continue to move.、Here. Here, just evidenced by you know the incredible sustained population growth. So that's Austin, Alan. What other cities are growing right now in the U.S.? Well, you know the interesting thing about the U.S. is most places aren't growing. A few places are growing really strongly, and they tend to be. Until relatively recently, it would have been mainly the places along the coast, California. D.C., New York area, Boston area, Seattle area. Now California has slowed down, as we know. And what's happened is a whole cluster of cities inland have started to grow really strong. Austin might be the number one, but you've got to include Denver, Salt Lake, Nashville, Raleigh, and cities like that. Now again, not a lot of them. But they're definitely happening. What's driving that shift, where we're seeing people move to cities more in the middle of the country rather than those coastal areas? Well, part of it is that coastal areas have become incredibly expensive. Also, it's really hard to build in the coastal areas, and there's a lot of talk about overregulation, which has some truth to it. But it's also when you look at places like the, the Bay Area with water, mountains. You know, it's not easy to build there, period. And you know, there's a still a very strong growth culture in a lot of this country. You know, places like Denver, I'd say Salt Lake, North Carolina, they talk about they want growth, they attract industry, they're actively trying to get jobs, and when you get jobs, you get people. Well, one economic and job sector that's boomed in Austin is tech. But how big is tech's footprint in the region today? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's huge, right?、Um, I mean,、uh, behind Silicon Valley, but here in Austin,、um, the nickname we have is Silicon Hills.、Um, and actually, what was incredible incredible to me in putting together that podcast and that particular episode about the tech industry here in Austin was just how far back this history goes. Right, as far back as the 1950s, the city and and、um, the Chamber of Commerce, kind of business interest folks here, had been coveting and encouraging and trying to incentivize tech companies. To move here, companies like IBM, which moved to the city in the '60s,、um, obviously we didn't.、Uh, Michael Dell was already here. That was more of a homegrown example.、Um, but then we had、um, companies, or rather, research、uh, tech research institutes like MCC, Semitech, come here in the '80s. And so the history of Austin's tech culture really goes back several decades.、Um, you know, and now we have offices for Google, Facebook, Indeed.、Um, really, just list off any of the big、uh, tech companies. And they're likely here in Austin now. How have they shaped Austin, the tech sector specifically? 
Well, in in many ways. So, I mean, the biggest one is probably uh, salary, right? And so, you know, these companies generally pay a lot more than the median income here in Austin. Austin, for a long time, was was generally just a government university town. So, people who lived here worked as professors, or they worked at the capital, or they worked in city government. Um, so, making very middle income wages. Um, and then we have companies again, like I mentioned, Google and Facebook, that just kind of Afford to pay a lot more, and so people who are working for these companies move here or get jobs here, and they are just able to afford a lot more than the person who had been living in Austin, you know, for the past several decades. Alan, give us some insight into how people who run cities think about growth. It's a tough one, actually. First, a lot of cities basically see growth as kind of a validation. Of that they're a good place, that they're desirable, that people want to live there. This is all very positive. So growth is a good thing. There's a culture of growth in this country. Another part of it is that cities are in a constant chase for money to provide services. And they see growth as the answer in many respects to that problem. You know, getting more growth, more tax revenues, more consumption, you know, the whole bit. So between those, cities look for growth. The other thing is that our legal system in this country makes it very hard for cities not to accept growth. Explain that. You know, it's interesting. If you look at land use laws, the basic principle in this country is that if you own a piece of land, you are entitled to develop it in some fashion. Now, the city can adopt the zoning. It can say, can you build single-family housing, build apartments, you can build a shopping center, whatever. But the basic principle is you have some kind of right to develop it. And if not, you can sue the municipality for denying you that right. Now, if you think about most European countries, the basic right is to continue using it for the historic use, not to develop it for another purpose. That's basically seen as a decision that government should make in the broader, presumably, public interest. So municipalities are kind of a step behind even when they start. And the other thing you've got to remember is growth is a multi-gazillion dollar industry in this country. And there's huge pressure constantly on municipalities that are growing, that have jobs, that attract people to allow more growth because it's extraordinarily profitable for millions of people. Uh, Coming up, not everybody's a fan of suburban sprawl, but some people say there's an alternative. How do we grow in a way that's smart so that we don't do something dumb to this place we love? Up next, what some call smart growth. Back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. 
Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to growing cities by adding another voice to the conversation. Calvin Gladney is the president and CEO of Smart Growth America. It advocates for sustainable growth policies and offers tools to communities that want to do the same. Calvin, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Jen. Alan, before we talk about smart cities, I want to talk about suburban sprawl. Just what is it? Well, suburban sprawl is basically the process. We all know it. We all see it every day where development in our metro areas, keeps moving further and further out into the countryside and spreads out usually faster than the actual population growth because it becomes, as it gets further out, it gets lower and lower density. Lots get larger, areas get more spread out. And that's, in a nutshell, what suburban sprawl is. It's just the ongoing process of keeping moving out Now, an alternative to suburban sprawl is what's called smart growth. It's a term that was adopted and promoted by the Environmental Protection Agency and other organizations to form the Smart Growth Network in 1996. Calvin, explain how smart growth, in theory at least, is supposed to work. Uh, Thank you for the question. Um, Well, smart growth both is a method and a mindset. Um, And it's a mindset that says it's just as important where you build as to what you build and how you build it. And so in sort of in contrast to suburban sprawl, which which in addition to moving things farther and farther out, usually only have one type of property. So suburban sprawl is mostly residential. So that's a big component of the sprawl factor. So smart growth in some ways does the opposite. It looks to, for all people, Build communities that are walkable, that has a mix of property types. So it has housing, retail, it might have other amenities, jobs and services all there. Uh, And those communities, in in contrast to sprawl as well, are what we call compact and connected. So they're compact in that all of those various things, those property types, are near each other. Um, You can get to them hopefully by just walking around. And they're connected in the sense that you locate the community near existing infrastructure or it's near and has great access to jobs and services that you look for. And so smart growth also, when it 
when it adds to a community and makes it walkable, makes it compact and makes it connected, also says you have to make sure that it's served by public transit. So that would allow people to get around potentially without a car or to make less car trips. Um, And ultimately, all of this is very beneficial to people to individuals. And I have to say that smart growth is an, is a is a movement that's focused on people. And ultimately, if you do it correctly, people end up healthier, they have more economic mobility, and they get the chance to live in a place that's climate resilient, which ultimately benefits both the larger environment and all of us as we all try to fight climate change. Audrey, I want to return to the Growth Machine podcast. Here's a clip from the episode Smart Growth or Dumb Growth. If you don't have affordable housing built into your plan and you don't have a significant public transportation plan uh, put into place for smart growth, what you're going to get is smart growth for the wealthy, smart growth for those who can afford it. And that's going to displace everybody else. Audrey, in your reporting, what did you learn about how Austin's smart growth efforts in the 1990s raised housing costs? Yeah. So in the 90s, you know, the city of Austin had sprawled for decades. We, you know, I-35, the city's major highway was built in the 60s. And basically since then, people had just been moving farther and farther outside of the city, as Alan mentioned, sort of in this pattern of suburban sprawl. So in the 90s, our mayor back then, Mayor Kirk Watson, who I should mention is once again, our mayor, um, he uh, embarked on um, smart growth. And so he incentivized and was encouraging encouraging businesses, particularly tech businesses, to move downtown. And by that, to also get people to start living downtown. Austin's downtown prior to this was kind of a, a ghost town. No one really uh, lived downtown or spent much time downtown. Um, and a byproduct of that is all these people were moving downtown. They also started moving into the city's east side, which had historically been lower income communities of color. That came after a city plan to actually forcibly segregate the city by race in the 1920s. Um, and so there was this huge demand for housing. But at the same time, we hit a recession in the early 2000s. So so really smart growth, um, it didn't quite ever get to take off in the sense that we didn't get to really build all the housing that all the people we had now incentivized to move downtown and to move into sort of uh, more the core of the city were, were asking for and seeking. And so we what we saw was a lot of um, displacement on the east side, lower income, um, lower income residents who just um, really couldn't handle this this new population that was moving in that um, really raised the price of housing in the area. Let, let's hear another clip from Growth Machine. I mean, I distinctly remember the first time I saw, you know, a white lady jogging down the street. Distinctly remember. I thought she was in trouble. My mom just said, I think she's jogging. You know, I remember starting to see more Anglo neighbors. I mean, I distinctly remember sort of very slowly watching the change. And that's a resident of East Austin speaking there. Calvin, what we hear in in Audrey's reporting is residents of East Austin saying we weren't brought to the table when these smart growth plans were being made. We didn't have a voice in how this planning was done. How can cities adopt a smart growth approach without pushing people out of neighborhoods, especially low-income people and people of color? Absolutely. And I appreciate that Audrey mentioned the kind of racist history that um, really put 
you know, black and brown people on the east side of I-35 and, you know, wealthier, mainly white folks on the other side of I-35. Um, and I mentioned that um, for a couple of reasons. One, I'll say that if, if what people are doing is not equitable, then it's not smart growth. So um, I know um, the podcast uh, episode, the guy who was speaking said, well, they did not put affordable housing in the plans. They did not think about small businesses. They may not have thought about lower income people. If they didn't do that in their planning, then they were not doing smart growth. If it's not equitable, it's not smart growth. Um, and so there, those are a couple of things that you can do to make sure that people aren't displaced. But I want to mention two others that don't get talked about as much that in some ways are just as important and particularly are important going forward now. And it's what I call both our visible and invisible infrastructure. Um, the visible infrastructure I kind of mentioned, uh, and you can go to any, almost any community in the country and find transportation infrastructure, highways, or fast-moving streets that were built through black and brown neighborhoods. And that infrastructure, which is visible and everybody sees it, really leads to the, the sort of bad outcomes because then you have certain parts of the city that you can build in or or not focused uh, or get a lot of focus and then other parts that aren't because they're on the wrong side of a highway. And so that visible infrastructure that's built, and we just did a report on this called Divided by Design that talks about all of the wealth extraction, the environmental harm, and the damage caused by these type of visible bad infrastructure decisions. Those are the type of things that cause inequity inequity and displacement. And so it's not smart growth per se, it's actually that bad infrastructure decision. But the second piece is what I call invisible infrastructure. And Alan, my buddy Alan, who I know for many years, mentioned this, which is zoning. Um, It's invisible because most people know of it, but haven't seen it, don't know how to deal with land use regulations and the like. And it's the zoning, and Austin is a great example of this, which also causes, leads to displacement or higher rents or higher sales prices and the like, because... Right now, 75% of our country, from one um, statistic, is zoned for single family, which means when you have all of the great demand and the growth that cities are looking for come to a city, you can only build in so many places any new multifamily or housing that's affordable or housing that isn't single family, and that almost certainly pushes up rents and pushes up prices. So we have to change our zoning laws. We need basically national zoning reform that happens state by state and locality by locality that helps us address what we know is already a housing crisis where one statistic shows that we're 7 million homes in the hole, 7 million homes that we still need that aren't being built. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with single family zoning that only allows one house to be built on a plot of land. And really, that goes back to that history of suburban sprawl that Alan talked about earlier. For cities that are facing this growth, what are a couple of key questions city leaders should be asking themselves? Um, have they talked to the community that they intend to benefit? If you want growth to be equitable, you have to get the voice of the community and understand their needs. Second, they need to understand that it is 
actually a positive fiscal choice to do smart growth. The infrastructure costs less, and they actually have more tax revenues if they build compact and connected walkable communities. That's Calvin Gladney of Smart Growth America. We also spoke with KUT housing reporter Audrey McGlinchey. Audrey, Calvin, thanks. Now, up next, what's the fastest growing state in the U.S. since 2010? Hint, it's home to picturesque national parks and a church with a big cultural influence. Back with more after this quick break. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the discussion and add another voice. Joining me now from Mill Creek, Utah, is Jeff Silvestrini. He's the mayor of Mill Creek, which had about 63,000 residents as of July 2022. Mill Creek is a suburb of Salt Lake City. He's also president of Utah's League of Cities and Towns. Mayor Silvestrini, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. I'm a big fan of your program. I listen to it whenever I can. Well, thank you. Well, I'm, I'm curious what took you to Utah because you moved to the state from Michigan. Yeah, so I, I moved to Utah like a lot of people have moved to Utah. Um, when I was 22 years old, uh, I came to go to law school, but I wouldn't have come to Utah if it weren't for the skiing and, and the mountains that are here. It's just a beautiful environment, five national parks, wilderness on our back door. How would you describe the current rate of growth where you live? So Utah is the fastest growing state in the country over the past decade. Our, we've, our population since 2010 has grown by almost 24%. And uh, that's presented huge challenges for all of us. Um, about two-thirds of that growth over the course of that 10-year period or 12-year period has been internal because our our uh, Utah culture has uh, big families. And uh, But lately, um, that growth has been in migration from other states, um, especially following the pandemic. We're seeing people being able to work remotely. And up until this point, housing prices in Utah have been more affordable than some other places. So that encourages people to move here. We have a great jobs market. We have uh, Silicon Slopes. I heard of Silicon Hills, I guess, in Austin. But we have the same kind of a tech environment. We have a lot of financial services here. We have a, a big Goldman Sachs presence in Salt Lake City. And uh, so it's a it's a it's a great place to live, and people not only move here, but our kids come back. They go to school out of state and come back. Now you said the housing costs had been pretty reasonable up until now. Are you starting to see that shift? Well, you know, we got behind the curve, I think, like a lot of the country, in building housing during the Great Recession and starting in two thousand seven. And we haven't ever been able to catch back up to make the, the supply meet the demand. That's the that's a fundamental problem. And so like Alan and Calvin have talked about, we've tried to be intentional about this, the growth we're facing and try to implement strategies to, to promote more affordability, to make sure that we're not losing existing affordable housing stock to, to redevelopment, although that's happening. Um, and we're also struggling as cities. We have limited tools like... like uh, like was mentioned earlier, you know, Salt Lake City and my community as well are kind of like blue dots in a red sea. We don't have the tools of rent control and we cannot mandate a lot of things, nor do we have the resources to subsidize affordable housing. So what we have done is 
come up with a plan to try to in, incentivize affordable housing by by actually giving density bonuses to developers to build more units, um, go higher, um, if they will commit in exchange for that to deed restrict some of those units to make them affordable to some percentage of average median income. The, we're doing that and we're also concerned about home ownership because a lot of this housing that's being built is rental. And that we're also seeing um, a, a, a movement in our country, I think, where in institutional investors are buying up housing stock and then renting it. And it's preventing people, especially people starting out from being able to buy affordable housing to own it. And, and as we mostly know, I think you've talked about before, home ownership has always been the key to building wealth in our country. And um, to, if we sacrifice that, we're sacrificing some of the American dream. So lots of big problems. Yeah. We got this email from Laura who says, growth is simply a Ponzi scheme that comes ultimately at the expense of the environment. And Mayor Silvestrini, I wonder how that issue is coming up, especially in a place like Utah, where the natural environment is valued so highly. So, you know, there are places that are seeking out growth, and but there are other places that growth is just a wave that's coming over us, and there's not really nothing we can do about it. In a place like Utah, where we have a high birth rate relative to the national average, and I like to tell this story, people in my city will get up and speak in a public meeting, and they will say, I, I'm sick of all this growth. But they'll preface their remarks by saying, I've lived in Mill Creek for 35 years. I've raised my four children here, and I'm proud of my 10 grandchildren, and I am sick of all this growth. The growth that we face is is largely internal. It's our own kids and grandkids, and, and this is a great place to stay. So our kids come back. I have two daughters that went out of state to college. They both moved back to Utah. They look like in migration from California and Washington State, but they're coming home. So so a lot of the challenge, really, it's educating people, I think. You know, it's easy to say that, you know, cities are corrupt. They just want, want to listen to the developers and they're doing this. No, we are trying to we are trying to make housing affordable for the people that want to live here and, and to preserve the great environment that we have here. So so that's why we I think I'm, I was gratified to hear Calvin and Alan talk about some of the smart city stuff. Because in Utah, we have, have, are trying to be intentional about our growth. We've come up with plans to build centers of density connected by transit, which is exactly what Calvin talked about, so that we can get walkable communities, people living in centers. It prevents sprawl. And, and I tell people all the time, people will say, I don't want to see a six-story apartment building built in Mill Creek. But if we don't allow that densification and do it in a smart way, the sprawl just creates more congestion we have to build more road lane miles. It, it, it hurts our air quality, which is a real challenge in Utah. And it also uses more water, which is a challenge to growth in Utah. So, you know, we are trying to do what we can. We have plans like we have a plan called Wasatch Choice 2050, which promotes this idea. Well, you got there just before we got this email from Michael, who says, what's the outlook for water supply in Salt Lake City? It seems that that will be the ultimate limiting factor in the U.S. Southwest. So it definitely is a limiting factor. And, uh, you know, in, in Salt Lake City, we are faced with the challenge of, of the climate crisis drying up the Great Salt Lake, which portends uh, a lot of problems. That The Great Salt Lake lake bed is full of, of heavy metal minerals. And if those start blowing into our airshed, we're going to have some real issues. So we are doing everything we can as a state to put more water in the, into that lake. We have um, in Utah enough um, precipitation 
we, we have water for culinary purposes. We use a lot of water for agriculture. We're just trying to be smart about that, get that ag people to be more conservative, use more drip irrigation, do things like that. So we recognize that's a, a huge problem. Water is a huge problem for us. We also got this email from Sharon who says, Oklahoma City is experiencing tremendous growth in the inner core of our city. Unfortunately, neighborhoods that were constructed in the 1950s are being destroyed. McMansions are replacing 1950s ranch-style homes. We do not have the infrastructure or city code regulations to handle these huge homes that replaced the 1,000-foot ranch. I mean, Alan... Is, is part of the conversation that we haven't really touched on yet what Americans want, what U.S. residents want in I, terms of housing and, and what they expect? I think a lot of this is about some of these questions we never really ask. Like, what do people want? What do people need? Also, you know, I don't know that many cities have ever thought about growth in a bigger sense. I mean, they have the zoning, they have their land use plans, their subdivision regulations, all this stuff. But no city that I know of has actually sat down and said, if we grow or if we develop in the ways that this is, what are the implications of that in terms of housing costs, in terms of the environment, in terms of quality of life, in terms of impact on long-term residents? It's complicated, but people aren't thinking about that. And on what people want, you know, it's, there's an interesting question here. I think still most Americans want, at some point in their lives, a single-family house. Now, I think... into. Most Americans, I think, want at some point in their lives to be a homeowner. Now, interestingly, in the United States, we connect homeownership with single-family houses. Most parts of the world, people share the same desire to be homeowners, but see homeownership, as often as not, as being a condo. Mm -hmm. It's an apartment. It's a flat. It's, yeah. Yeah. But in the United States... At one point, it looked like that was kind of moving that way. And then after the Great Recession and the foreclosure bust, it's like the, the market for condos just com almost completely evaporated. Mm -hmm. So all the multifamily we're building for all practical purposes is rental housing. And that really works for people at some points in their lives, especially when they're young and they're single and they love to live in downtown and nightlife and all the excitement. But We've got to figure out how to provide the right mix for people and also how to provide the kind of single family houses that don't eat up two, three, four, five acres for each one of them. Alan, your latest book is Smaller Cities in a Shrinking World, Learning to Thrive Without Growth. You said that there is this, uh, it's, it's written into, into our land use laws, this push to grow, but what's the alternative? Well, I think, I mean, people clearly are going to want to grow in a lot of places. But the reality is that growth in this country is slowing down. Even in Utah, the birth rate within the population has dropped faster than the national average over the last decade. People are having fewer babies. Population growth is slowing. And I think we're going to have to start thinking about how to live without as much growth as we've had in the past, how to live in a society with more older people and fewer children, how to start looking at local solutions, whether it's 
you know, sustainability, whether it's agri local agriculture, you know, a lot of things like that. We have to, I think, start rethinking our whole country philosophy around the idea that growth is not something that goes on forever, but that it's actually slowing down and things are going to be very different in the future than they've been in the recent past. That's Alan Malik. He's author of the book, Smaller Cities in a Shrinking World, Learning to Thrive Without Growth. Also with us, Jeff Silvestrini. He's mayor of Mill Creek, Utah. Mayor Silvestrini, Alan, thanks for speaking with us. This show is part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country, including KUT in Austin, Texas. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.